While we're doing a little wrap-up up here, let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Genesis chapter 50. We have, we have come to the end of the beginning. Genesis is all about beginnings. And uh, this morning and then again on June the 27th, we're going to have our last two looks uh, into, into this book about the glorious ruin that is humanity and our uh, relationship with God. Next Sunday we'll take a break because we'll be 2028. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll have a, a special uh, serving time next Sunday morning, but we'll come back and wrap completely up the, the following Sunday. But we are, uh, we're coming to an end, and at the end of every story, you always want to know, how does it end? How does it conclude? Cindy and I will, will be watching a movie on TV that I've seen before, and she'll say, now, how does this end? You know, that's a suspense. You know, maybe there's a chance that the hero is going to, you know, get killed or something like that. And she'll say, well, how does it end? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you how it ends. That ruins it. She said, well, you don't tell me how it ends. I, I'm, I'm going to go do something else. I, I can't stand and not know the end. So I, I don't know how many of you are like that, and you just got to know, does, does everybody turn out okay? Does it work out all right? Uh, and, and the best stories that we remember from our childhood are probably, you know, those fairy tales where, you know, it said they lived happily ever after, right? I mean, you, we grew up in kind of the Disney generation, you know, whether it was Cinderella, you know, and her battle against the evil stepsisters and the evil stepmom, or whether it was Snow White against the evil queen or, or Beauty and the Beast. And is, you know, is the beast going to come around and before that last petal falls off the robe, off the rose, but, but they all ended okay, right? They, the, the, the hero won and, and, and the princess was swept off her feet. The only problem with those stories is that they're all made up. <laughs> None of those are true. It's all make-believe. There aren't always fairy tale endings in life. A lot of stories are written and you, and you read the end of those stories and you kind of shrug your shoulders and you say, boy, that's, that's really a tragedy. That's really awful. That, that's, that's too bad. That's disappointing. A lot of stories don't end in a real positive way. Case in point, maybe you've seen uh, the, the romantic comedy that came out in 2006. Uh, the title was The Breakup. It starred Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn. And uh, the movie's about this couple and all their dysfunctional quirks in their relationship. And, and, uh, and they start out, and it's just at the point in their relationship where they're starting to kind of not like each other too much, kind of rub each other the wrong way. And as the movie goes on, it kind of gets worse and worse and worse, and you keep waiting for somehow for all of this mess to get solved and for them to get back together and to everything, you know, ends up perfect because that's how movies end. And this movie ends, and I'm going to tell you, if you haven't seen it, don't worry, I'm going to save you an hour and a half. It wasn't that good. Um, but, the, but the movie ends... And they break up. They stay broken up. And you kind of walk out. On the one hand, you're kind of going, oh, that just didn't feel very good. I got to go to a movie. I want to feel good. But on the other hand, you go, well, gosh, that's, yeah, that's kind of how life works out sometimes. Two weeks ago, Jeremy talks about, talked about the brothers of Joseph being confronted about their sin and the opportunity they had for repentance and the opportunity they had to see and experience God's grace in their life. Last week, Scott talked about Joseph's opportunity to, uh, to write his legacy, as it were, to, to, to write, to pen his obituary with an act of forgiveness. And Joseph does that. He forgives his brothers. So can we say um, they, they all lived happily ever after? Is that how the story ends? The, the question really is from a, from, a, from a family point of view, from a relational point of view, do they recover from the deep wounds and scars of their lives? This family had torn itself apart. It wasn't outside influences that had brought harm to Joseph and his brothers. It was Joseph's arrogance at a young age that drove his brothers 
to uh, disengage with him relationally and ultimately to hate him. And it led Judah to say, let's sell him into slavery. And it led to the, to the destruction, really, of their life and the brokenheartedness of their father for years and years who assumed that Joseph was dead. Are they going to be able to recover from real-life, deep, difficult human scars? Because if they can't recover, then the question maybe is, well, maybe then I can't either. Because there are people in this room, probably the majority of whom have some serious scars in our lives. They're caused by relationships with others, maybe family relationships, maybe a spouse, a son, a daughter, a mom, a dad, maybe deep disappointment in our career. But probably if we're honest with ourselves, everybody would say, yeah, I've experienced those moments where the pain was almost more than I could bear. What does the Bible have to say about that? Is there a chance to come back from that kind of despair? Joseph's story, his story of his brothers, is really our story this morning. It's a reflection of life right here in Kirkwood, St. Louis, Missouri, in the year 2010. Because if there's hope for Joseph, his brothers, then there's hope for us. If there's truth in Scripture that applies to them, then it may also apply to us. So with that in mind, Genesis 50, beginning of verse 15 and going through the end, uh, or end of verse 21, we're going to see how they complete the obituary, how they, how they finish the story this morning. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted and spoke kindly to them. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, as we come now to worship you with our, with our minds, as we uh, seek to engage thoughtfully with this passage of Scripture, it's very important that we also engage prayerfully. Because, Lord, what has to happen here is something supernatural. It is not the words of man that carry any weight. The words of man are fleeting. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. Lord, I I have no authority to speak to this congregation about the hope of healing deep scars in our lives. I don't have the answers for that. I'm just as befuddled as everyone else. Lord, if you don't come and speak this morning, if you don't reveal this word to us, uh, then the next 30 minutes or so are in vain. They're a waste of our time. Father, we know what you promise in your word, that it is living and it is active. It's as sharp as a double-edged sword. It can can literally divide between the joint and the marrow. It can pierce our hearts and reveal the truth. Father, that is what uh, is the longing of our hearts this morning, that we would see your word and your truth. Lord, even for those this morning that maybe don't even know if you exist, the, the deep desire of every heart is to understand the greater picture, the true meaning of life. So, Lord, I pray that you would forgive my sin and 
Uh, Don't let me block what you want to say this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and make this word living and breathing in our lives, that we would uh, be able to apply it, be able to take that truth and use it for your good in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to just give you two observations this morning about this passage. The first is going to be, uh, actually, I'm going to do them in reverse order, but I, but I want to look at Joseph's opportunity one more time to uh, forego vengeance uh, with his brothers. Uh, Scott talked about that last week, and I'm going, to, I'm going to come back and visit that just a little bit. And then I also want to kind of come back and visit, I think this is a good wrap-up of Jeremy's as well. And the, and the second observation is really the brothers' chance to be freed from their guilt, freed from their shame. Uh, the opportunity that they all have together to experience true reconciliation uh, as Joseph and his brothers really complete the obituary uh, that they're going to leave behind as they write the last page. And so I'm going to do them in opposite order than I introduce them. I want to look at the brothers first. I'm going to give you uh, three observations about them and then two observations about Joseph and this whole question of, of forgiveness and grace uh, and mercy. The brothers' first observation, the first observation I want to give you about the brothers is they're really living with what I'm going to call lingering guilt. They, they haven't gotten past this, this uh, sin that they committed over 20 years ago. Look at verse 15 uh, in chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father, who was Jacob, by the way, if you've been around for a while, you, you, you've uh, heard us spend some time with Jacob, their father was dead. And they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Now, if you remember from the last two Sundays, if you were here, you know that some form of reconciliation has already taken place. This question has already been raised and it's been answered. Joseph, are you going to be, uh, are you going to be vengeful? Are you going to be vindictive? Are you going to get your brothers back for what they did? Uh, and when they, when they met Joseph, they were fearful that that's exactly what was going to happen. But Joseph has already said, no, I forgive you. And he's already said the words that we read this morning earlier said, God, Uh, took care of what you did for evil. He turned it for good. So the question seems to have been answered already. Joseph is forgiven and he's already begun to care for them. I'm not going to put these verses on the screen, but if you you, uh, look back in verse, excuse me, chapter 45, beginning in verse 5, he said this to his brother, so it is not you that sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And he says that God has done this in order to provide for you and for your family. So Joseph has already answered the question. But it isn't settled in the hearts of the brothers. They're still, after all this time, at unrest. Why? Perhaps they think that, that what Joseph's answer was only a temporary answer. He was, he was simply telling them that out of respect for his father. He wasn't, going to, uh, he wasn't going to exact his venge while his father was still alive. But, but really this grace, this forgiveness in his brother's eyes, perhaps it was just a ruse. Perhaps it was simply Joseph biding his time until the moment was right. In other words, the work of grace was not yet complete in their hearts. They're still battling their shame. They're still battling a choice they made years ago. And in that, I think they reflect many of us. There are a lot of us who still carry around with us the burden of shame, the burden of guilt over past offenses. And so they're they're living under this assumption, uh, you know what, I don't know that I would forgive my brothers if they sold me into slavery. Uh, So why should I trust that Joseph is actually forgiving me? They suppose that Joseph is like them. 
which I think brings up a very interesting point that I don't want us to miss this morning. The, the sin in our lives, the purposeful sin that we do against others, the way in which we harm others. I, I think it causes what I, I've made up my own little term for it. I call it a soul defect. It actually does some kind of breaking in our, in our soul and it corrupts the way in which we look at life. It, it corrupts our, the filter through which, the lens through which we see the world and others. And it causes us to be skeptical. It causes us to say, you know what, if I live that way, my assumption is that everybody else is going to live that way too. If, if I was kind of rotten uh, in, in that past experience, it only stands to reason that others will be exactly the same way. And you begin to look at all of life through that lens. And my guess is perhaps this morning, some of you are carrying that filter with you to church. You have guilt in your heart for past hurts and the guilt is still lingering and it's causing you to look at the world in a way that's very cautious, that's very skeptical, that really doesn't have room for the grace and the mercy of God, much less the grace and the mercy of your fellow man. But not only do the brothers have a lingering guilt, they also have a a fearful spirit. Look at verses 16 and, and 17. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers, their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Notice what they said, what they did. They sent a message to Joseph. They didn't say, hey, let's let's run by the office and sit down and have a face to face. Now they were living in the land of Goshen. We haven't really covered that part of it, but they're probably uh, in, in our in our terminology, they're probably about 15 miles from downtown, okay? So if you, you think about the capital and where Joseph was and where the land of Goshen was, it's probably about a 15-mile journey, so about a day's trip to, uh, to get into the, to the capital, to get where Joseph is living. In other words, they're, they're giving themselves a little bit of wiggle room. They're giving themselves a day's head start if the answer comes back in the negative. If they find out that the messenger has been killed, if they find out that, that Joseph's response has been a negative response, then at least they've got some time to pack up a few of their belongings and hit the road before Joseph shows up. They're, they're moving forward in a very fearful experience. Their thought process is, is this. If, if mercy is really a sham, if he was just pretending to, to forgive us, then we may have a chance to escape. Again, a lot of us live our lives that way. We hold people at arm's length because if we let them get too close, it may be just too painful. I'll give you a, a, a kind of a goofy example of this in, in my life as a young child. Uh, when we would go on car trips, and a lot of you have gone on car trips with your family, um, the strategic spot on a car trip, if you're a child of three with three kids in the back seat, is, um, is passenger side back seat, okay? You, or, excuse me, driver side back seat. You want to be directly behind the driver. Because you know a couple things. If you're going to be in the car for more than 10 minutes, you know that you're going to get in a fight with your brother or your sister. You just know that that's going to happen. And you know at some point your father's arm is going to come over the back seat in a sweeping motion, and he's going to just, that's going to be a wave of destruction, right? Well, you know, when, and I'm older now, you know, and I know that you can't quite reach as far as you used to be able to. You're not as flexible. So the hardest kid to get to is the kid that's right. You actually have to turn around while mom holds the steering wheel to actually, you know, to actually beat that child. So I figured out that's, that's the safest place you want to be. You know, so you cause all the trouble and then you just lean into the door and you're, and, and you're, you know, you're pretty much safe. But you know what? A lot of us spend our lives doing that. 
A lot of us spend our, our spiritual life saying, where's the, where's the driver's side back seat? That's where I want to be. I have to protect myself. I know my guilt. I know that I don't live the way I should. I know that I've harmed others. I know I haven't trusted God the way I need to. I know I've caused relational damage, emotional damage in other people's lives, but I'm going to get in the place where it's the best opportunity. It won't come back to me. And friends, what that means is that we're trying to pay the price for our sins. We're trying to come up with a solution that will for all of eternity evade us. And Joseph's brothers, we're we're, we're trying to get in that seat. We're not going to let Joseph's long arm get to us if this really was just a ruse. They're living not only with guilt, but they're living with a fearful spirit. But one other way in which they're living, they're living with a slave's mindset. Look at verse 18. We'll, We'll come back to verse 17 in a few minutes when we talk about Joseph. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, that word in the Hebrew for servants is, is the word for slave. So you can, you can co-mingle those words. We will be your indentured servants if you want to use uh, the word servants in that, in that sentence. Obviously, the messenger has come back. And the messenger said he, he received the message. I'm, I'm still in one piece. No problem. Now they say, okay, let's go to Joseph and let's make sure. You see the lens of life through which they're looking? We better go and simply offer ourselves as slaves. Maybe that will pay the price. They simply can't believe or they simply can't accept mercy. And so it's as if they go to Joseph and say, how about a deal? We know you don't really mean what you say. They're living by the the adage that, that a lot of you have heard, turnabout is fair play, right? It's only fair that he gets us back after what we've done to him. But you know, a lot of people approach their relationship with God that way. A lot of us think that it's kind of a quid pro quo, and and I better do something good this week, because last week I really messed up. You know, Saturday night I stayed out a little too late, maybe I had a little bit too much to drink, maybe I, I acted a little bit inappropriately, so I'm going to early service on Sunday morning even though I don't feel like being here. Why? Because I want to make sure that God knows that, I, that I, I'll just be a slave. I'll just do whatever he wants me to do to, to keep him from, from harming me. And we have this warped view of God. This, this life filter that I'm talking about, friends, doesn't just impact the way you look at other people, but it radically distorts your view of the living God, the merciful and gracious Father who offers unconditional forgiveness. Do you remember the... Uh, I'll give you a New Testament example of this. Do you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? He came to Jesus. you remember what his question was? He didn't say, uh, how do I receive grace? What did he say? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Friends, that's the question of a slave. That's the question of one who has no standing in the kingdom, who has never experienced the grace and the mercy of God, and you can never in your life overcome the guilt and the fear and the, and the slavery, no matter how hard you work at it for yourself, you end up in a very wretched condition because you've misunderstood the grace of God. You haven't seen it yet for what it truly is. Which brings me to my observations about Joseph because I believe in this story, Joseph represents the heart of God. Joseph's made mistakes in his life. He's not perfect. Joseph isn't Jesus. But in this particular passage, We see how God has been at work in his life, and I believe he is a representative in this particular moment of the grace and the mercy of God. So if you're here this morning and your focus is messed up because of your guilt, 
If your vision is off and you're living with a, with a fearful spirit, you have a slave's mindset. I know God's out to get me for all the bad stuff I've done. Maybe I can square the deal. Maybe I can, I can, I can even out uh, with a payment. You need to see the heart of Joseph. You need to see what God has done in his life. I want to begin in, in verse 17. I said we'd come back to that. And I want you to see the grieving heart of Joseph as he grieves over this broken relationship. Joseph wept when these messengers spoke to him. These guys, I don't know if it was one or two. It's in the plural. So uh, maybe there was a messenger from each brother. Maybe, you know, Reuben and Judah and Levi. You know, maybe each brother sent one messenger so that they could say, yes, I'm here for this brother. I'm here for that brother. Scripture doesn't tell us clearly. But when Joseph hears this message, when Joseph hears that they still don't believe that he is gracious and merciful, he weeps. Joseph mourns his brother's inability to receive grace. Because you see, Joseph's spiritual journey has come full circle. You remember, if you can, we'll go back far enough, and, and I don't even remember you know, what I said yesterday, much less a few weeks ago, but if you can remember back to when we first met Joseph, he was a class number one, spoiled brat, irritated everybody, arrogant so-and-so, the kind of kid you didn't want to be around. You read the story of Joseph, and you see how, how rude he was with his brothers. He was a tattletale. He, he was spreading a bad report about him. He was his father's favorite child, and he knew it, and he played it to the extreme. You know, and, and that's, that was Joseph. Jo- that Joseph would have killed these brothers. But his spiritual journey, he's, he's been in the pit. <laughs> he's been in the dark places, and he's seen the faithfulness and the mercy of God when he didn't deserve it. And he understands what grace is because he's received it. Joseph knows he hasn't pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. Joseph knows that the gift of interpretation of dreams was given to him by God. He knows that God put him just in a particular place at a particular moment to move along his plan of salvation, not only for Joseph, but for his entire family. And so there's a humility, there's a gentleness, there's a compassion now in the heart of Joseph that wasn't there before. And he's able to offer genuine forgiveness and he longs for the restoration of these relationships. And I believe he does so in a, in, a, in a way that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of the messages for us this morning, for those of us who maybe have been harmed by another, and, and we need to offer forgiveness, as Scott talked about so clearly last week and how that's a process, and, and it really is something that may take years, but, but are we broken? Are we, are we sorrowful? Are we hurting over the person who has harmed us? If they can't see and experience the grace of God, Joseph has a grieving heart over his brother's attitude. But there's one other, uh, there's one other piece about Joseph that I want you to see, and I'm going to break it up into subpoints. But he really has uh, a proper perspective on how things should move forward. As you look at the last few verses of this text, but Joseph said to them, "Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me." But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. A couple of things about about Joseph's message that I want us to see this morning. Uh, The first one Joseph says in verse 19, he says, I'm not the judge. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph's saying, I understand the pecking order here, friends. I understand the appropriate uh, way in which the authority flows. And yes, I'm second in command over Egypt, but I am not God. 
He is Lord over all. He is the King of Kings. He is the only one with authority to give a ruling on you and on how you behaved and on your life. That is not for me to do. And Joseph foregoes a final vengeance and he spares his brothers. And I think in doing so, he also spares himself. Friends, do you understand that God is the final arbiter? That the Lord is the one. The author of Hebrews says very clearly, uh, it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. I will, I will balance the book someday. I will make all of this right. It's up to you to trust me. You are not the judge. You are not the jury. That belongs to God himself. And, and Joseph understood that. He wasn't saying that God wouldn't judge his brothers if they didn't repent. He wasn't suggesting that. He said, it's simply not my place. It's not my responsibility. That alone belongs to God. And I think in doing so, as I said, not only does he spare his brothers, but I believe he does something very healthy for himself. Uh, several thousand years after the life of Joseph, uh, another famous person wrote these words. Uh, these are written by Mark Twain. Therein lies the defect with revenge. It's all in the anticipation. The thing itself is a pain, not pleasure. At least the pain is the biggest part of it. I think Mark Twain, who, who was not a disciple of Jesus by his own admission, was on to some truth there, however. He understood that, that you, just, you do a disservice to yourself when you seek revenge, when you don't offer forgiveness. It actually comes back more onto you than onto others. And Joseph understood this, and he said, I'm not the judge. But he, but he didn't stop there. Look at verse 20 for just a second. He says this, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's understanding is that God is always in control, that he was in control when I was an obnoxious teenager, when you sold me into slavery. He was in control when I was wrongfully accused and put into prison. He was in control when he brought me out of prison and sent me over Egypt and gave me the answer to Pharaoh's dreams in order that we could be saved. I get that. I understand that God's providence is intact and his plans don't fail. It's part of his master plan. But I want to say, too, that Joseph didn't get the whole picture. <laughs> because for Joseph, as, as the rest of us, he's human, and his, his, his vision is somewhat restricted. And Joseph couldn't see thousands of years into the future. But Joseph was actually offering a prophecy in this particular statement. Not only for those who are kept alive in that day, but as we'll see on the 27th, we're going to come back and look at, at the, the blessing that the brothers receive. There was one important person who stayed alive, and that was Judah. <laughs> And Judah was to become a great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of King David, who was a great-great-great-however-many-greats-grandfather of the Lord Jesus. Joseph did not know the degree to which he spoke in that particular sentence, but he understand, understood that in the sovereign plan of God, that even things that go awry for a moment, even though they may be incredibly difficult, can be part of God's plan. It's what I call big-picture maturity the people that I really respect in the faith, the people that I look at and go, wow, when I grow up, I want to be like them someday. They're not the people that, that just go through life and say, oh, nothing bothers me. They're the people who go through life and, and, and have the same hard knocks, go through the same struggles, maybe even much more profound struggles than the struggles that I face, and yet come out of that saying, you know what? I still trust the Lord. I don't know why that happened. It didn't feel good. I wouldn't wish it on somebody else, but you know what? 
In God's grace, I trust my Father and His plan and His big picture. You think about Jesus in the garden. What did Jesus say? Lord, Father, if there's any way that the cross can pass away from me, let's do that. Let's go a different direction. But not my will, but yours be done. Joseph caught a glimpse of the sovereignty of God. So how does this story end? Verse uh, 22. Uh, verse 21 says, So do not fear, for I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Uh, in a sense, this story ends and they lived happily ever after. Uh, Joseph cares for them. He does what he says he will do. Uh, he, his grace uh, and his mercy spare their lives and spare them any more sorrow. And so in a sense, you can look at this and say it does have a happy ending, but I believe that, that Joseph's mercy, he comforts them. Don't fear, I'll provide for you, points us to a greater and a deeper provision that God is going to give to all of his people. As he brings the Lord Jesus, he brings the Savior to us. And in his mercy, he forgives an even graver offense. We didn't, as, as, I, as Jeremy pointed out a couple of weeks ago, we didn't sell Jesus into slavery. We nailed him to a cross. We murdered the Son of God. And yet, if you go to the book of Romans, which we're going to get to in a few months, and you skip ahead and you read Romans 8, verse 1, it ought to be a verse that every Christian in the world has memorized backwards and forwards. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Joseph personifies that message. I don't know where you are this morning in your ability to forgive or your willingness to accept mercy that has been extended to you, but I can tell you that ultimately that begins and ends at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm a disciple of Jesus. That's why I've staked everything in my life on the truth of the gospel because I need to experience mercy. I need to experience for grace and I need to learn how to give it to others. And I need that new life that's born in me through the Holy Spirit and the word of God when I put my faith in Christ to live its way out in my life day in and day out so that I can not only experience the forgiveness of God in its completeness and in its fullness and not only experience that it will take away my guilt, but also experience the empowering of the Holy Spirit to extend that grace to others. The world needs mercy. The world needs to see the gospel living through you and through me. I'm going to close this morning by reading you a, a, a short excerpt from a story out of a person's life. It's about four paragraphs long. Uh, and maybe you've heard this story before, I'm not sure, but I came across it again this week and thought it would be a fitting way to, to end the sermon. So, so just listen to these words as we close up. Have you ever unexpectedly encountered someone who has wronged you? There you are, suddenly face-to-face with your nemesis. How do you feel? Frederick Luskin, director of Stanford Forgiveness Project, says our bodies react as if we were in real danger right now to a story of how someone hurt us seven years ago. You're feeling anger. Your heart rhythm changes. Your breathing gets shallow. Corrie ten Boom and her Dutch family hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II. For this, she endured Ravensbrück, a concentration camp. Her inspiring story became a famous book and film, The Hiding Place. 
1947, in a Munich church, she told a German audience that God forgives. When we confess our sins, she explained, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. After her presentation, she recognized the man approaching her, a guard from Raven's book, before whom she had had to walk naked. Chilling memories flooded back. Corey recalled, excuse me, um, a fine message, Fraulein, said the man. How good it is to know that if, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea, he extended his hand in greeting. Corey recalled, I who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, but I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. The man uh, continued, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. For all I know, he extended his hand again. Will you forgive me? Corey stood there, unable to forgive. As anger and vengeance raised inside her, she remembered Jesus' death for this man. How could she refuse? But she lacked the strength. She silently asked God to forgive her and to help her forgive him. As she took his hand, she felt a healing warmth flooding her body. I forgive you, brother, she cried, with all my heart. And so, Corey later recalled, I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness anymore that it is on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on God's. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. Let's pray.